If you have a voice and a point of view about something and other people are not talking about it in public, then it's a way to be noticed as somebody who understands this, as opposed to you having to pitch yourself, find the job and then pitch yourself in the job interview. You've already kind of demonstrated. They've already read the stuff. They know you can do it. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient and more confident. There are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today's guest is Benedict Evans, a venture capitalist and analyst who's grown his own personal newsletter to over 150,000 subscribers. Benedict has spent over 20 years analyzing mobile, digital media and technology, working in equity research, strategy and venture capital. He spent the last six years working for the Silicon Valley venture fund Andreessen Horowitz, famous for their high conviction investing, having invested in some of the best known companies of our time, including Oculus, BuzzFeed, Medium, Pinterest, Slack and Airbnb. He's now back in London, working as a venture partner at Company Builder Entrepreneur First, as well as a venture partner at Mosaic Ventures. His side project is his weekly newsletter, all about tech and media, selecting what he calls the 10 to 20 pieces of news that actually matter, and explaining why they matter. It launched in 2013 and now has over 150,000 subscribers. We talk about why side projects can help with job interviews, the future bundling and unbundling of media, his golden rules for posting online, and why even he can get imposter syndrome when sending out his newsletter. I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for joining. I really appreciate it. A newsletter is something that a lot of people would like to do. I think it's a really nice way of better formulating what you think about things that are happening in the world. But I think it can be like with anything kind of quite intimidating, uh, knowing where to start. So the first thing I guess I wanted to ask was just why did you want to start a newsletter at all? So there's, there's a kind of a prosaic answer to this, which is I was having lunch with a friend of mine who was another former equity analyst, and I chatted about sort of seven or eight different things that I'd seen. And he said, you know, I haven't seen any of these because I'm too busy doing my job. You should do a newsletter. And, you know, I was an equity analyst from like, two thousand, from like 99 to 2005, I think. And doing a weekly newsletter was, or a monthly newsletter was just like an absolutely standard thing that an equity research team would do because it's kind of easy. And instead of having to have some sort of deep thought about what's happening with this company, you can just do a newsletter and it pushes out some value to your clients and it puts your name in front of them. So it's just like a normal thing. And so I thought, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. So I signed up with MailChimp and I had, I suppose I had 50,000 Twitter followers or something at that point already. And so I did one and I got like 300 people signed up. And then the next week it was like another 300. And I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. 
And it sort of grew more or less in a straight line from that. It grows about 1,000 to 1,500 a month net, depending on how much I write. And like the main thing that drives a surge in signups is if I write something that's popular, and then people sign up from the form at the bottom of the page. And most people seem to find it useful. Um, and I've sort of, I've looked at it and thought about whether I could get kind of strategic and, you know, do deep analysis or do kind of growth hacking and conversion tracking and so on. And it's, none of that has ever really had much effect. What has changed over time is I've been interested in different things over time. So I think like the first couple of months of issues were called Benedict's mobile newsletter. So I started in the beginning of 2013 and already by this time it was kind of getting clear that, you know, mobile had kind of was, was done. It happened. It won. That was, we knew that was the big deal now. And the questions I was getting interested in were changing. And so I changed it to Benedict's newsletter. And that's like the only major strategic step I've taken in six and a bit years. I played with other things, but none of them really had much effect on the, on the trajectory. But part of the value is most people actually haven't seen those stories at all because they're not spending all their time obsessed with trying to track what's going on in X or Y. Even if you work in tech, you haven't seen half of those stories. And particularly, like, you'll have seen the big headline things, but you won't have seen like the weird blog post about X or Y that's halfway down the link. But the other thing is that I have like a sort of 45 to 50% open rate, but only about sort of 15% of people click on the links. So most people are reading the summary, but not reading the links. And if it's a news story, I've kind of told you the story anyway, and you don't really need to click on it. So most of what people click on are the blog posts and like the weird, the top thing is always like the weird jokey thing that I put in at the bottom. But it's also, you know, why does this matter? And so there are newsletters that give you absolutely everything that happened that week or ever, even worse, everything that happened that day. And if you want to know everything, then that's fine. But most people just want to get a sort of a, what did I miss? You know, if the head of a FTSE 100 company was standing in the elevator and said, well, what happened this week? What would you say? And why would you pick those ones? And why does that matter? Why would you tell Martin Sowell that that happened? And what did that mean? Why are you telling me about it? Did it start as a professional thing or was it a total personal project for you? For me at the time, it was just, you know, I was sort of experimenting with content because I was working at a, a boutique consultancy, but I was doing it on a kind of a freelance basis so I could do my own things. And so I had a blog and there was no one to tell me I couldn't. And I was on Twitter and there was no one to tell me I couldn't. And podcasts, I don't think, I think at that point, podcasts had not had happened and then had not happened. So they hadn't happened again yet. Newsletters were not a big thing at the time. Now everyone has a newsletter, but in 2013, it was a thing from the 90s and not at, there weren't actually that many newsletters, which is why I set it up with MailChimp, which is fine, but it wasn't, MailChimp is not designed for this. MailChimp is designed for, you know, marketers. And so it, it then in the, like in the last couple of years, they've come back as a big thing. But at the time, no, it was just kind of, oh, that'll be interesting. Let's see if that works. Was there a particular conversation that actually drove you to starting it? Because I think there's a lot of people who talk about starting something or have that thing of, oh, that, wouldn't that be interesting if someone did this? But I think there's a difference between people who say those things and think those things and people who get started. Well, so I think, you know, I have other sort of things that I think about doing. And, you know, there's a sort of analysis paralysis there that, you know, I, sh I should do X, but how would I do it? And would I do this? And would I do that? And what would it look like? And how would it go? Whereas the newsletter, I mean, my newsletter, frankly, was sort of serendipity that, as I said, I sort of said, okay, well, there's some new stuff and there's some links and I should have some stats at the bottom. And they'd be the things I'd share with you. And that worked. And so I haven't had to kind of iterate ferociously over years in order to find something that worked better. Or rather I haven't, and maybe if I had, then I'd have a big audience. But, you know, the thing that I have sort of works, works fairly well. 
and in a sense, I sort of backed into it. You know, there wasn't some kind of brilliant flash of insight and, you know, six months of focus testing and asking all my friends, you know, would this work? Would that work? Would you do this? Would you do that? I just started doing it. And I think the aspect of the kind of the form that I have is that it's relatively low um, intensity in that you don't have to spend like, I don't have to have a brilliant idea every week. It's just, well, what would I say about this story? Whereas I, I blog less frequently because for a bunch of reasons, but you know, the, the blog posts were, were involved quite a lot of thought and a kind of, uh, hopefully an original idea, or at least what I think is an original idea. And it's not just me writing something because I've got to write something that week. And so blogging is harder. And a newsletter and a podcast are both rather easier because you don't have to do the preparation in the same way. I mean, you do have to do some, but you don't have to have every paragraph in the right place and have carefully worked out what unique, interesting, original things you're going to say in quite the way that you do if you're going to write 3,000 words. So on blogging, I think that's a really interesting analogy. I think a lot of people have opinions on things that are going on around in the world, but they are a bit afraid to put something out there. Firstly, just because it's scary to put your opinion out there. But secondly, I guess, because of this idea that the internet isn't actually something that disappears. Do you have any fear around putting something out there and then later changing your opinion or regretting it? Um, well, there's what's that Groucho Marx line that, you know, these are my principles and if you don't like them, I've got others. Um, I think... I suppose it, it, it depends. I mean, there's sort of, I suppose there's several axes where I'm conscious of what I'm saying. Um, one of them is that I try, and it's partly my academic background and my banking background, is I try very hard to make sure that I don't say anything that I can't support and that I haven't checked and to distinguish between what I think is a fact and what I think is maybe this will happen. And so to distinguish between facts and or my idea my 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 professional expert opinion of what is a fact what whether this is true or not versus my opinion as to I don't whether I think people would do that or whether I think that will happen. And so I try and distinguish on that axis. Um I think the second is um it's very easy to sit and look at a piece of software and say this sucks. And A, not understand A and 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 not really understand what sits behind that. And it may be like there's only three people there and they're busy. It may be you're just not the target customer. It may be, yes, they know it sucks too, but, you know, life is hard and building stuff is hard and, you know, they ran out of money. And so, you know, you kind of, you never want to say anything that you wouldn't say to somebody's face. And it's very easy, particularly on Twitter, to say stuff that you wouldn't say to somebody's face. And, you know, and I, I have, you know, where I've regretted saying things, it has been because I've been gone too far down the line of just attacking people without, you know, when there's, there's no value to that. Um I think the third thing is, look, you know, predictions are hard, especially about the future. And there's things that I thought would be bigger deals that weren't. Certainly, there's things that I was not particularly impressed by that became big deals. And that's, that's the nature of thinking about technology in particular. I think the question one has to ask is, well, was there some lesson I can learn from that? Was I, was I, was I wrong, wrong for the right reasons? Was the process working? And so, you know, whoever it is, that guy who wrote the essay saying, you know, Facebook isn't, isn't worth anything because if they're not making a profit now, they never will. The point wasn't, the problem with that isn't that he was wrong. It's that his whole process for getting to that conclusion was broken. He just wasn't understanding what he was looking at. And I think that's really the way you need to think about those kinds of predictions would you say it to their face and would you be comfortable, you know, if somebody came to you five years time and showed you this and said, you thought that, would you go, oh, wow, that was stupid. 
Or would you say, well, you know, it was a reasonable thing to think at the time, and this is why I thought that, and it turned out it was wrong. So I've not sat and said, well, this company failed, or that company failed. Um, I've said this technology hasn't doesn't seem to be getting traction, which is kind of a different way of thinking about what that problem would be. And as I, and again, you know, you don't want to personalize these things because you know very occasionally somebody is actually an idiot, but generally most people are, most most of the time people are, are kind of decent people trying their best. You said that Andreessen Horowitz hired you largely because of the newsletter. Oh no, I'm not not quite because of that. I mean, you know, but but part of what I was doing for them was all of the public facing stuff. So you know, blog posts and presentations and podcasts and the newsletter and, and the newsletter and Twitter and so on. And you know, it's like the old joke. You know, if you can't get a meeting, I mean, if you can't get an interview as a salesperson, then you're not a very good salesperson. Um, you know, getting the interview is kind of is the interview. And you know, so part of what I did for them was explaining stuff, talking about stuff, explaining technology explaining what we were thinking about, what we were seeing, um, and also explaining, you know, both, both in the entrepreneurial venture capital community, but also to kind of big companies who have become potential customers of, of our portfolio. And so that was part of what I was doing for them. And so it kind of fitted naturally into that. The reason I ask is I think that that's actually often a kind of weird side effect of side projects where you don't go into it planning to get a job through the side project but then I think through doing that particular thing you learn more about yourself you strengthen particular skills and then you actually find a company which fits your personal interests. Yes I mean I think there's sort of two parts to this and one of them to put it kind of crudely is self-promotion that if you have a voice and a point of view about something and other people are not talking about it in public, then it's a way to be noticed as somebody who understands this, as opposed to you having to pitch yourself, find the job, and then pitch yourself in the job interview. You've already kind of demonstrated. They've already read the stuff. They know you can do it, as opposed to you having to persuade people in 40 minutes in a meeting room and having to get the interview in the first place and so on. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that that can be a new thing. You know, it may be that you're very, in, you know, you're working in X, but actually you're really interested in Y. I mean, the kind of canonical example of this would be um, Iman Ahmed at Business of Fashion, so the McKinsey consultant who was not working in fashion, but was interested in it and wrote a blog and the blog got very popular and the blog turned has now turned into a company with, I think, close to 100 people. And, you know, it turned out rather like Matthew Ball writing about the entertainment industry, there's a point in time when nobody was doing industry analysis of the fashion business online in a modern way. So there were lots of people talking about the product and there were people talking about the companies at a kind of Wall Street Journal Financial Times level. There were people writing about LVMH, but there was no one talking about the strategy for XYZ at company ABC in a modern online way with that level of insight. There's an old, um, there was an old writer for the New Yorker called A.J. Liebling, who used to say that he could write better than anyone who wrote faster and faster than anyone who wrote better. And what I would have said like five years ago was there were lots of people who know more about this stuff than me or could have said those things. And there are people who have a platform and can publish, but there's a, the intersection of the two is pretty small. There are lots of people at Apple who could say really interesting things about supply chain, but they weren't allowed to say anything in public. And the people who were very often didn't understand, they didn't have that kind of analytic industry background or weren't, you know, weren't used to making, finding data and making charts or weren't used to producing stuff in those kinds of ways. And investment banking analysts weren't allowed to publish it in public and writing for quarterly earnings. And the consultants aren't allowed to piss off any of their customers. 
So there was lots of people who could be doing what I was doing, but there was no one who could do it in the way I was doing it in public. And the same for Imran Ahmed in a different way, the same for Matthew Ball writing about Hollywood. And so if you are in that space where you feel like you can find that voice to talk about something that other people aren't talking about, that can become useful in its own way. I remember Chris Dixon, who's a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, saying, um, and this can be kind of another topic, how do you work out what to write? But what he said was he would just go and Google common topics and see if there was a good blog post about them. And if there wasn't, then he'd write one. And it was what anyone would say. It's just that no one had written it down. You know, what anyone would say about subscription or funnels or X or Y or Z. And it's not like he said something no one else would have thought of. It's just there wasn't a blog post about that. I think that comes down to confidence because I think a lot of people have a lot of things that they could add into the world, but they might, they might search that same thing, find that nothing's been written about it, and then ask that question, why me versus why not me? How do you think you got to that kind of way of thinking, which was, I guess, having the confidence that if there's a gap, you're the right person to fill it? Uh, so there's different ways of getting at this. And one of those is um, just because everyone in the industry knows it, that doesn't mean there's no value to writing it down. And another is, you know, I sort of have imposter syndrome every time I do the newsletter. I mean, I, I look at the, the blog posts that I write, they have a lot of thought goes into them. And I spent, you know, they might have been on a list of things to write for a couple of months. And, you know, some of them are, you know, more significant than others or write about something more interesting than others. But, you know, there's, there's a bunch of them that I go, yeah, that was really good. I'm really glad I wrote that. The newsletter, it's much more throwaway. And I look at it every week and I think, well, surely everybody's seen this stuff. But the truth is, you know, look at the, the audience and, you know, most people are not in tech and most people even in tech have got their heads down thinking about things. And, you know, most people in tech who are thinking about that stuff might not have realized that or thought about that as a useful thing. And they may have seen this story, but not that story. And so um, you kind of, you can't look at it and say, well, I wouldn't read that. Instead, you have to kind of take a step back and say, look, is there something valuable here? I mean, how can I put this? So then I way think thinking particularly more, more about how I think about to tell people how to write a blog. People say, how do you think about what to write? And I say, well, think of something that you said to 10 people in the last three weeks and write it down. And it doesn't have to be 5,000 words. It can be 300 words. I mean, Fred Wilson basically blogs every day at nine o'clock. He gets up, he goes to the gym, he does his yoga, he has his coffee, he writes his blog post, and then he goes to the office. And so it doesn't have to be tremendously consequential every time, but there needs to be some sort of voice and sometimes that kind of reason why... Um, why you would say that. But it doesn't have to be that you're the, like, the unique genius casting down thunderbolts from Olympus. You, know, you can just be the person who explains, okay, no, 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 this is how this works. But I think to your point around blogs feel less transient. They feel mm. more thought out. And even though you might not be saying, I'm the expert on this, it does feel like you're doing a blog instead of a tweet or you're doing a blog instead of a, you know, something in the newsletter. I think that people do, they get, whether it's writer's block or a confidence block, I think there's a, something that stops people doing it. What do you think allows Fred Wilson to do it every morning? Well, Fred Wilson is a lovely guy, but I don't think he suffers from imposter syndrome, given he's been one of the most successful venture capitalists of the last 20 years. But also by doing it every day and not feeling like he has an obligation for this to be the momentous, the most momentous thought you'll read this month, you get a rhythm going. And some of his posts are very interesting and some of them are, you know, well, I'm glad that was interesting, but not, you know, some of them and will not, you will not come back to in five years time and some of them will. So I think it kind of comes back to what I was talking about newsletters and podcasts, which was there was a moment when everyone had a blog. And I think a combination of Twitter and Instagram killed blogs and 
killed it, probably killed Tumblr as well, but certainly killed blogs and Facebook to some extent. And the forms shrank because, you know, it wasn't once upon a time, I mean, blog stands for weblog and a weblog was basically like a link and five lines of text around it. That was like the original form in the 2000s, whenever it was that WordPress and Typepad and so on got, got started. And the length and the commitment and the, the sense of obligation as to what it should be has shifted over time. And you can see the same thing with Instagram. I mean, so I use Instagram only for kind of taste and preference. So I follow architects and interior designers and I post pictures of things I've seen in art galleries and there's no pictures of my son on it. But most people use it as Facebook. Most people use Instagram as the unbundled photo stamp from Facebook. And actually most people don't feel much pressure. I mean, it kind of depends on your demographic, but like, yes, there's a portion of people who feel tremendous pressure for the Instagram picture to be great. But most people, it's just a crappy picture of their cat. And so there's something about both the form itself, but also how, we, how, that, how our perception of it changes over time that changes how much pressure we place on ourselves. I suppose that's what I'm getting at. And so no one really, but no one feels that the tweet has to be like unique and brilliant. I think actually to that point around when a new media replaces it, it changes the form or the use case of the old media. I think actually by introducing Instagram stories, it has actually put more pressure on the Instagram post mm. to be more of a blog post. It's kind of like the Instagram stories Twitter and then the Instagram, the main kind of Instagram feed is the blog post. And I think, as you say, it's like, it's this almost awareness that um, you could have done it as a story, but you've chosen to do it as a, as a main photo, or you could have done it as a tweet, but you've chosen mm. to do it as a blog. I think what I, I suppose what I'm, what I'd circle around or maybe the takeaway would be like, you know, my blog is that my, if you go through the archives of my blog, which goes back to 2010, you know, I used to do like two or three small things a week. You know, I just post chart. Or I'd post, here's an interesting stat and here's a chart, or here's a story that's happened and comment on it. And that's changed over time. And actually, I mean, a, a bunch of reasons I haven't, I've published one post this year. I've got like, obviously all the stuff I was going to write, I now can't write. It's like the world has changed. But I don't think you have to feel any obligation as to what your blog post should be. You can use it however you want. You know, your blog can be, here is a chart that I saw this week. Your blog can be, this has happened or that's happened. You can pull stuff or what, you know, and you can make that Twitter or you can make that Instagram or you can do it as a blog or a podcast or a newsletter. I mean, I think part of the reason the newsletters and podcasts have come back is another phase in that cycle of blogs dying. Blogs died, then it went to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. But then like, well, if I want to write, where do I write? And how would I find that? And that's partly Medium and Instagram and, and, and LinkedIn. Um, but it's also, I think a lot of the newsletter thing is actually, it's not a newsletter. It's a blog subscription essay. It's a subscription blog post. And I think podcasts, and again, are also sort of some aspect to that, that what, what's happening here is a continuous kind of continuous recasting of what you would write, how you express yourself, how you would say it, how long, how short, how consequential, how not consequential how it'll get distributed, how many people will see it. And, you know, it's there's a kind of continuous shifting of format. It's almost come up with your own reason for why you're doing it and then establish a regular cadence. Yeah, I think the cadence, I think cadence is important. We're both from the kind of your consum consumers to actually see what you're doing, um, but also for yourself to get into the habit. I mean, there's nothing worse than starting a blog and doing two, two blog posts and then disappearing. What do you think links all of those things though? Is it just simply self-expression or creativity or curation or what does that drive? There's a, again, there's a sense of, is there something interesting that you could say about that? And it might be interesting to your peers. It might be interesting to someone who knows nothing about this industry or both. It might be about something that's completely outside the world that you work on and in some other professional field or some other field completely. But 
you, if that's interesting to you, there's a pretty good odds that it's going to be interesting to some other people. I mean, this is the kind of the, the line, you know, the internet is the densest city. So, you know, you're not the only gay in the village anymore. You know, there are hundreds or thousands of other people who are basically interested in exactly the same stuff as you and the internet lets you find them. And probably many of them, and no one's interested in any one thing. You know, I mean, I follow the Maritime Museum in Hamburg, and I follow Alice Walsall, and I follow some bloke on Twitter who posts pictures of weird, obscure experimental aircraft from the 50s. And I don't know who this person is, but, you know, he posts these pictures of these really weird, interesting aeroplanes that I'm interested in. And I'm also interested in design history, and I'm interested in ships. So you don't have to, it doesn't have to be one thing. That's interesting because it links to this whole thing around how the landscape of media is changing. So it's almost grouped more around interests or grouped more around individuals. So people, you know, journalists, for example, instead of now submitting their article necessarily to New York Times, they might create their own newsletter and monetize that via Substack or something like that. Do you think that the media landscape is going to continue to go in this fragmented way? Or do you think we're going to see a resurgence of these corporations which are bringing creators together? I mean, there's this great line from the co-founder of Netscape um, that there's two ways to make money in business, bundling and unbundling. Yeah, I mean, it's a continuous process. So, you know, you bundle and you unbundle. And so um, clearly what happened to newspapers and magazines in the last sort of 10 and 15 years is that both the individual sections got unbundled, but then the stories and the writers where they got unbundled and where the writers had a, a unique voice or a strong voice of their own, then they were able to go direct. Um, or create their own thing in some way. and um, But then there's also a rebundling. I mean, you can only follow so many brands, you can only follow so many things, and whether that rebundling is Instagram or Facebook or Tumblr or Gmail or, or all the wave of new publications that get created, there's always value in a bundle. And there's value in a bundle and there's value in unbundling. And so we kind of go around and around that, that, that cycle. And I think part of the you know, the kind of creative moment around that is when somebody spots that there's some moment in the zeitgeist. I mean, I often compare social at the moment to magazines. So kind of looking at Facebook and saying, well, Facebook's got all of the social, you can't do anything else. It's kind of like, you know, 1960s looking at Vogue and saying, well, Vogue's got all the women's fashion, so you can't make, make another magazine. And like, yeah, you can't make another Vogue, but that didn't stop Helen Gurley Brown doing Cosmopolitan. And Cosmopolitan is not Vogue, it's something else. You know, it's like um, Tyler Brule looking at GQ and say, well, I can't do another style magazine. Um, and then going off and doing wallpaper and then monocle. And so if you can identify some piece of the zeitgeist or some piece of how people want to feel, and then you can capture that, then there will always be these new forms. Um, they will just keep coming. The old ones will fall apart and break away and new ones will get formed. So you don't think that, it, that it's a kind of steady progression to... A atomization. Yeah, I was going to say decentralization, but that, that's not the right word. I think, I think yes, yes, but I think it continually goes in both directions. You know, we're always getting, you know, and you know, clearly the internet has enabled a kind of a massive atomization that wasn't possible before, but it doesn't mean that you don't need some form of aggregation again, mm. whether that's following things on Instagram or the recommendation algorithms or new brands and new titles that come along. There's, there's always going to be that, those kind of, that, that pendulum swinging back and forth. So if you are a creator and you want to, you want to earn more money. So I guess when you look at commission prices for journalists are what like about a hundred pounds an article something like that mm. maybe a hundred to five hundred pounds an article 
Whereas if you, I guess, if you had that direct relationship with your audience, one, you, I guess you can set the price depending on how valuable you, you define yourselves to be and your audience recognize you to be. But two, I guess you can expand the kind of thing. Once you've built an audience, you can expand the kind of things that you offer them. So, okay, maybe you start by being respected by having great opinions and writing great articles. But as you grow an audience, maybe there are other ways that you can relate to them. I wonder if there's a trend for people who who are audience first instead of kind of content first and actually then they they diversify their skills well it's kind of i suppose if we want to talk, to talk about people who've made money from building a content brand online then kylie jenner would be on that list somewhere this makeup business was valued at 1.2 billion dollars from memory and she sold half of it and so there's something interesting there so there's two interesting things here so the first of them is and it's not really my field but i read a sort of fascinating magazine article and there you are a magazine article a while ago about how basically Instagram has completely destabilized, disruptive, discombobulated the celebrity industry because you're no longer dependent on paparazzi. You're no longer dependent on those titles to get to your audience. You can get direct. And so there are a whole old world of like, I need, yes, but I need TMZ. I need the paparazzi. I need them to take the pictures of me so that people will see me. Um, and that whole sort of symbiotic relationship has complete, been completely transformed because now all of those people can go, can go direct. And so I think that's one part. The second example, if you're a D2C brand and you're no longer paying rent on physical stores, that doesn't mean that that money drops to the bottom line. You're going to need to spend that money somewhere else because otherwise people won't know you exist. So that's either advertising or marketing or sales promotions or it's, you know, in the past it would have been rented stores or you'd have rented space in stores. Well, now you're going to have to pay that money to Amazon or to Google or both. And that's not new. That's not that Amazon has invented some horrible new evil thing or Google has. It's just how it works. Like, otherwise, how would I know you exist? And so Amazon has now like a $10 billion advertising business and Google and meanwhile, booking.com and Expedia between them pay about $10 billion a year in search advertising to Google. But like, what did you think Walmart and Macy's were doing? What do you think a shopping mall is? It's the same thing. And what's different is Kylie Jenner, who didn't have to spend that money because she had that brand and that reach already from something else. And in the past, the way she'd have made money from that is with a makeup deal or, you know, endorsement deals. You know, she wouldn't have had her own handbag brand. LVMH would have paid her to be on a poster for a handbag or makeup. Now she has her own makeup brand. And that's a combination of Instagram and Shopify and Stripe and a bunch of platforms like that. Plus, of course, you know, the makeup supply chain, which I have, again, like I know less than nothing about, except that obviously it exists somewhere. But that meant she would be able to make that brand herself. And I think that's much more interesting than um, Casper, who are basically a mattress company with a website. And it's to that, to your point, I mean, these are, this is obviously kind of an extreme example. It's not open to all of us to, to, to do what Kylie Jenner did. Um, but the, the point is the ways that you could attach revenue onto something vary quite wildly, quite widely and much more widely than they might have done in the past. My boss at ACHGNZ, Mark Andreessen, um, used to say that Andreessen Horowitz was a, um, was a media company that monetizes through VC. It's a jokey comment, but you know, I was there and there was a bunch of other people there and a lot of stuff coming out of there and there wasn't any advertising or subscription on it. You know, the way that they made money was through running that purpose for all of that was to support the venture capital business. And I think there's a lot of other things like that of like, well, why does this content exist? What's the purpose of you doing this? If you take the Kylie Jenner example, what I'm curious about is that I think that that is true for celebrities and it's happen it happens a lot with them bringing out their own product. But I'm curious of whether that's going to trickle down to normal people on the street and whether whether that's a replicable model and whether that's already kind of changing the way that other people operate or whether that's just a, the domain of... Well, there's a power curve, power curve law here and like for most people, like no. And, you know, there's a unique 
call it talent if you like. There's a, a unique set of assets there and um, a unique opportunity. Um, and I'm not saying, suggesting that everyone will be able to do that, but, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of people want to build a business there. Some people have, you know, and it's not dozens, it's hundreds. It's, I don't know if it's thousands, but it's certainly hundreds of people in different fields have been able to build something there and in all sorts of different ways. I mean, you know, there's a, um, you know, picking like random things like the points guy. I've got no idea who that is, but it's not a traditional media company. It's somebody who just obsesses about MRs and business class seats. There's some guy who was like a men's style correspondent for the FT, I think, who now has his own blog and his own business, you know, with selling clothes and affiliate marketing and so on. So, you know, there's, I suppose, there's, you know, coming back to a kind of an earlier conversation, this might be that it's just interesting and fun. It might be that it's a way of broadening your career opportunities and broadening the reach and the influence that you have. It might be a way of learning and meeting people and learning more about something. It might be your second career or your side career or another pillar to your stool. It could be all sorts of different things. I don't, and it kind of comes back to you know, our earlier conversation about you know, self-confidence. I don't think you necessarily have to start by saying, right, this is my plan for how this is going to pay my mortgage. I certainly didn't. I agree. I think, and actually, the more conversations I have with people who have side projects, the more I realize that I think, especially with a side project, it just has to be authentic. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you're doing it with an extrinsic motivation, one, it reduces the authenticity uh, in general, which doesn't make it as enjoyable for you. But two, I think actually it gets rid of what is great about side projects, which is that you authentically connect with other people about things that you find interesting. You don't usually, you usually have quite a transactional relationship. Mm. Um, and I think with side projects, because they're just something that you're just curious about, it allows you to connect with people in a way that's, that's unusual. Mm. Yeah. And I think part of the, you know, if I have kind of one point is there is a serendipity there. You know, is this your next major career move or is this something interesting that you're going to experiment with? And that kind of comes back again to the point about confidence. You know, if your job, if your, if the purpose is to quit your job and this is going to be the thing, then yeah, you need to be confident and you need to have a good plan. But if this is an interesting thing that you're going to play around with, then you should play around with it and see what happens and see what you can, where your interest takes you. Lots of people will be thinking about potentially turning side projects full time. What kind of markers do you think they should be looking for before taking that jump? I don't think I have a good answer to that. I mean, you know, if, if you're doing this thing and, you know, people are throwing money at you, then you've got kind of clarity of, of one sort. I think that, so there's a, there's a financial question and then there's a life question. Is this actually your passion? And obviously you need to be able to make a living from it. And, you know, you may, and very rarely it may be the case that, you know, you start the thing and people just start throwing bundles of money at you and the question answers itself. More likely, you know, you have to kind of work out, is this actually what I want to be doing for the next five or 10 years of my life? You know, you kind of you get through you get into your 30s and you start thinking those kinds of questions thank you so much no problem speak later thanks so much for listening to the out of hours podcast to hear more about out of hours sign up to our newsletter at outofhours.org and if you've enjoyed the episode please consider leaving a review it really helps <laughs>